0: Hey everyone, welcome to The Front Porch. I'm Brian Beaudry. Uh, Today I'm gonna talk to Josh Nickel, the Vice President of the Equipment Segment over at the ARA. One thing you might not know, Josh used to work here at Point of Rental, so I kind of know him a little bit. Um, We talked about that at the very beginning, and then we moved on to some things that are possibly more interesting for non-Point of Rental related people. If you like our interviews, you can subscribe to Point of Rental on the podcast platform of your choice. Please like, rate, subscribe, review, And if you have suggestions for how we can improve the podcast, you can message me at marketing at pointofrental.com. Yeah. So let's get to it. Here's Josh. Welcome to the Front Porch with Brian Beaudry. Who are you? Where are you from? And what is your favorite thing to grill or barbecue so the last part of that
1: question is probably the easiest part to answer so i'll start with that i think my favorite thing i love to grill and you know this is what which is why you asked this now this is becoming a hard question because i'm having a harder time deciding i thought i knew my answer was going to be a tomahawk ribeye but you know now i'm not so sure i think i'm still going to go with that i'm going to go with the tomahawk ribeye as my favorite thing to grill or barbecue, and particular, a reverse sear method, which means that you put it on the smoker first until it reaches about 120 degrees and then you sear it over like 700 degrees to get a nice crust on it. I think that's going to go what I'm going to go with. Um, but I'm Josh Nichol, um, I'm the vice president of the equipment segment at the ARA. Uh, I would say I'm mostly from Georgia. Uh, people don't always agree with me because I don't sound like I'm from Georgia. I was born in Florida, first nine years in Florida, and so that's where I developed a lot of my accent from. Um, and so when I'm up north, I tend to sound like a southerner, and when I'm in the south, I tend to sound like a northerner and don't really fit in anywhere because of okay. that Florida thing. But I would say I, I would consider myself an Atlantan.
0: Okay. Yeah, that uh, that twist for grilling barbecue sounds pretty darn good. We can enjoy one together one day. I'm glad that you felt that that one was the easiest question to answer instead of like your name. I mean, it, it, I, mean it, I thought it was gonna be easy and I was wrong. Uh, yeah. So I mean, I guess sometimes you make
1: mistakes, right?
0: Yeah, it, it's okay. Stay out of your own head for this. the rest of this though. You can just answer with whatever comes to your mind. Okay, Josh, you were once part of the Point of Rental team. I should know because I was your body double for the photo shoot. How um, about that? And you're so much taller
1: than I am too.
0: Yeah, luckily we didn't do a full like <laughs> size shot. You were once part of our team, obviously. What are some of your takeaways from your time here with us?
1: You know, it's, it's really interesting. Software is so much more complex than I expected it to be. When you're the rental company yourself, you look at your software and, and you're really kind of focused on what you do and the way that you do it. And it's really easy to fall into the trap of, well, I wanna do it this way. When you get to be on the software side of things and see it from that more holistic perspective, it's, you know, rental companies, we like to all do things different ways and add so many different complexities to what we do. And I think one of my key takeaways was how important it is to, to see your software vendor as a partner in what you do. And, Ask more open ended questions. Um, So instead of saying, Can I do it this way? Or I want to do it this way? Or this is the way I've always done it for 20 years, you know, to go back just like you would with most of your other vendors and say, Well, what's the best practice here? You know, what's the best way to do this? You know, should I be looking at different ways to accomplish some of these tasks? And then continue that relationship over a, a long period of time. Again, rental is complex and rental software is complex. And so I see so many people who implement software and, you know, they get to where they can write really good contracts in that first week. And then they don't come back, you know, six months or a year later. And some of the most successful rental companies that I saw would come back to Point of Rental every couple of years and say, you know, what's new? Where do I start? You know, they would go to the international conference, of course, as well. But sometimes that one on one training to take where you're at and then adapt it to where the software is going, I think is really effective and, and efficient. And then some on some level, it's, you know, the similarities in the business. Sales is still sales. Customer success is still customer success. Instead of, you know, having developers to develop software, you have mechanics to maintain the equipment. I would almost say to some people that rental is SaaS. You know, it's it's a service rather than a software, um, but the, the product we're getting back and we're sharing, we're reusing it. Just like there's a, relative
0: inherent sharing of SaaS software. It's interesting. I like that take. So, when you came here, we immediately sent you away from America because I don't know, apparently we just wanted you to be somewhere else. Um, how was your experience in our UK office? Can you take us through the process of getting not only yourself but an entire family overseas?
1: Totally. It was such an interesting and fun experience. Certainly, I think most of the people at Point of Rental know this, but not everybody realizes that I'd never been to England before I took the job to move to England. We just knew it'd be okay. My, my wife uh, had visited England in high school, um, but that was it. And so, you know, for us, it was a lot of going over and just remaining flexible and not, you know, trying to hold everything at arm's length, not having expectations. I think that's where you really start to struggle is when you have expectations. We sold most of our stuff. So we went over with very little stuff, knowing that we were going to need to get new stuff. And, you know, thank goodness for Amazon and Ikea, because we had a ton of stuff shipped to us. Like the day that we got there, we picked our house uh, that we rented uh, online and, you know, it just worked out. And what was really interesting was... The things that you would probably expect to be difficult were the easy things because the internet makes things so much easier now. And it's the easy things that are so difficult, you know. So we move in, we've got all of this trash, unfortunately, from, you know, all these Amazon boxes and Ikea boxes. What do you do with it? Well, where's the dump? The dump doesn't exist in England. And so, so what do you do with your trash? Trash doesn't exist in England either. So, wow, this is a weird place. A a week to figure out the right terminology to ask the right questions because I couldn't Google the answer because the the answer wasn't, you know, the terminology wasn't right. So, finally, I'm talking to coworkers and they're like, it's rubbish and you're going to the tip. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, (laughs) but I'm going to go with it. I mean, rubbish, I kind of get. And so, we show up at the tip and you need a permit. i I didn't know and and you have to get your permit from your town council which i don't know what that is Um, (laughs) you know so some of the things like just you know getting your trash taken somewhere was the super difficult thing
0: um and i I hope you eventually got it taken out that it's not just sitting in that apartment still
1: it it is not still sitting there no we did get it taken out and it was all taken care of um but it was just it, it was it's a funny world you know and there's so much that's not built around people moving from country to country. Like when we got there, I'd already planned, okay, this is where I'm gonna get my cell phone and this is where I'm gonna get my bank account. And so the day we land the plane, I go to the bank to get my bank account and they say it's gonna be three months. And I'm like, I can't do that. So I go to another bank and they tell me they can get me in today, but I need a cell phone and they can't use an American cell phone. So I go to the cell phone company to get a cell phone. All I needed was a SIM card, but they couldn't give me a cell phone without a bank account. And so I was able to get a burner phone, be able to go back to the bank to set up a bank account, to go back to the cell phone company to get a cell phone, and then I was told my credit wasn't good enough because you start over. Um, but, but cell phones aren't expensive, or at least the service isn't in the UK, and again all I needed was a SIM card, and I want to say it was like 15 pounds a month or or something minimal like that. And I was like, "Well, I'll just pay for the whole contract right now." And they're like, "But your credit's not good enough." And I'm like, <laughs> but I've got no credit if, if I'm paying for it all up front, you know, there's yeah. no mechanisms for stuff like that. And so it's those, you know, unexpected, simple things that I think were complicated, whereas getting over there um, and the people, you know, I, I'm a big believer that everybody wants to be appreciated and validated. And if you start there, then the rest of it gets a lot easier. Um, and so the rest of that experience was really fun and rewarding and exciting for the whole family. I don't even know
0: where to go from there. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to ask you what's something that you miss about point of rental this is just for the uh for your point of rental homies so one of the things that was really
1: cool about point of rental is just the diversity of background and ethnicity and cultures that you get to interact with because it's it's a small family-run company on some level but it's also a global software company on some level and so it straddles the two of those worlds and so, you know, every day you're dealing with somebody in a different culture. And, you know, I remember talking to Josh O'Connell and him being like, you know, you need to make sure to put pleasantries at the beginning of your emails, you know, because some of the Americans, they just jump right to business and, and you know, you need to ask me about the weather or something like that.
0: Oh, no, I must be in trouble with Josh because I, I always and, get those.
1: And, and, yeah. And so I'd always, you know, I would do that, but getting used to how everybody is very similar yet also a little bit different and getting exposure to that. You know, when you're expanding into other countries, there's just so much complexity that you don't expect um, because we're all a little bit different and weird in our own ways And, and learning about that, about the local group and local culture, and then figuring out how to meet them where they are, whether it be teammates or potential customers is something that's a really unique challenge that if anybody ever gets the opportunity to do, I would say is well worth the challenge.
0: Okay. I feel like I've guilted you enough slash promoted point of rental enough. Let's focus on the other stuff that maybe some people outside of the company are interested in. Let's start way back in the olden days when you were about eight years old, elementary school age. What did you want to be when you grew up? I don't know why you have to
1: say way back in the olden days when you asked that question. I mean,
0: I know. I mean, I say saying, it about myself, too. I turned 40
1: this year. So that turns the knife a little oh, bit. Oh, that makes it sound meaner. It normally I'm does. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. So when I was eight, I was still living in Florida and I believe I wanted to be a zoo veterinarian. I was even a volunteer at a zoo. Um, at age eight? At age eight. Yeah. Wow. Um, I I don't know why. Uh, I think I had read a Diane Fossey um, biography and thought it was really cool to hang out with gorillas or something. I think even from a young age, I knew I liked complexity. And so I was very specific in that I wanted to be a zoo veterinarian, not a you know, a family pet where it's, you know, relatively similar things that you're addressing every time. Like, I want to deal with the animal that can eat you for dinner. And so for some reason, you know, that's what I wanted to do at eight. And I think it was not long after that, I decided I wanted to be a emergency room doctor, which was kind of an evolution of now let's work on people and help people instead of just animals. They won't eat you. Thank goodness. Not usually. Hopefully, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I, I you know I kind of craved the excitement and doing something new and different, which was you know very similar to the zoo that not wanting that regimented position or work where I do the same thing every day. I wanted something new, uh, pretty often. And both of those did a good job of of at least piquing my interest back then. Um, obviously, I'm neither.
0: Um, yeah, so. I was gonna say where did where did it go? from those things to rental business? I mean, at least you do still have the different thing every day. So from there, it
1: went to professional musician. I played the oboe throughout high school and went to college on a music scholarship. Turned out I was really good at it, um, but wasn't really passionate about it. I I enjoyed the competition of it, I think. And I think if you look back and even you look at all those three jobs, you can see a lot of what I do um you can see uh dealing with complexity i mean the rental industry is inherently complex dealing with excitement it's a growing industry it's a changing industry it's it's relatively young compared to a lot of other industries you know i mean it was started really back in the 50s you know most industries have been around for hundreds of years So we're still evolving in a way. And to be part of that evolution on a national and global scale is just, I think, a really cool thing. So I don't know if that quite gets me all the way to here, but uh, I think it's some of the reasons that maybe I started there and ended up here. I have had little known fact, um, Gorilla Chow, and it tastes like granola, really. But, you know, just in case anybody ever asks you, that's what Gorilla food tastes like.
0: (laughs) I'm trying to picture a situation where someone's going to ask me, but I'm glad I'm prepared now.
1: If you ever go on a zoo tour behind the scenes, they will probably try and feed you some animal food and you don't want the lion food, but the gorilla chow is definitely something you, that you can snack on.
0: Okay. Behind the scenes, knowledge at the zoo. Good. Where, where, wait, where does the oboe thing come into your current job?
1: I, I guess with that one, it's, you know, I was never much of a sports guy. Um, okay. I it was really terrible at sports. Um, and so I a lot of people use sports metaphors about working with a team, playing together. I do the same thing, uh, but I I tend to use orchestra metaphors, which usually okay. falls flat. So I don't use them a whole lot. But it, it's similar in that you know you're all part of this kind of organism when you're performing and sometimes you need a little bit more of this a little bit less of that uh, to get louder or softer to work alongside somebody on a part and i think that complexity of team dynamics and almost must able to feel that flow just like you know you're you're a basketball guy you know you weren't always thinking about your next move or your next shot i'm sure you were you were just in the moment with the rest of the people on your team trying to perform, do that great thing that you were there to do. And I think that's what I really enjoyed from playing the oboe and being part of that, was being part of that bigger team and making something cool together that we couldn't do on our own.
0: Darn! I was kind of hoping that you were actually just playing the oboe in the ARA offices, just like as a welcome when people come into the office. I mean, it's a thing that could happen, but I don't think
1: it's on the list of things to happen.
0: That would make a good promo
1: video though, I think. It could make an interesting promo video. I don't know if it would make a good promo video.
0: Okay. So it seems like you were encouraged to pursue non-rental interests. I was going to ask if it was that you were encouraged to pursue those or if it was always kind of known that you were going to go into nickel rental.
1: It was always a foregone conclusion that I was not going to go into nickel rental and I was not going to be in the rental industry. Uh, I think I... Almost went against the idea. Uh, my dad was great about it. My, my whole family was great about it. I'm an only child. Um, so nickel was either going to get sold or it was going to get passed on. And you know, my dad had an interesting ride to getting into the rental industry as well. Um, he's from a podunk town in Kentucky called Paducah. If you're from Paducah, I'm sorry, I called it podunk. Uh, but it is a small Kentucky town, especially back then. And they said, if you're smart, you're either a doctor or a dentist. And he wanted to be a baseball player. And he wasn't good enough. And so he went to the University of Kentucky to be a dentist. He graduated college a year early, uh, went into the dental program, was three months from becoming Dr. Nickel um, when he quit college and called his brand new father-in-law and said, remember that time he joked around about me working at the rental company with you? I'd like to take you up on that. And he'd always done that because people told him that's what you're supposed to do, um, because that's how you be successful. And so he, it was always very important for him to tell me, do what you're passionate about, and you'll find success. And so that gave me a lot of freedom to consider and pursue anything, um, you know, whether it be music or being a zoo veterinarian or or whatever that was. Um, it wasn't till I was pretty late in college I had changed my major from music major to business major, you know, there were a lot of things about business that I liked. I felt like it was a little bit of a catch all. And so I didn't know what kind of business I wanted to do. And so I I went to a a co-op school where you spent half the year going to school and half of the year uh, doing internships. Um, And one of the internships was with a big corporate company. Uh, And it was interesting, but there was a lot of politics you had to play, and I didn't like that so much. And then I worked for a small company, and we were a brokerage house, sold life insurance to life insurance agents. And, I mean, it was just cold call after cold call. Um, But when I was out to lunch with the owner one day, he was like, you know, Josh, I could sell hot dogs, I could sell insurance, I could run equipment. I just like being part of a business and needed a decent product, you know, and that's when it kind of clicked for me that you know, I don't have to be able to fix the equipment. I need to be able to hire great mechanics and find good people and find people who are passionate about the work that they're gonna do. You know, I like leading the teams and and, uh, working with the people and building new teams. Um, And none of that requires me to fix equipment. So I called up dad not long after that and said, you know, maybe we should give this thing a shot. Maybe it it could be interesting. And uh, started off in the service department. I did terribly. I have some super embarrassing stories. Oh, Good, save it for later. Yes. I'll save that for later. Um, I'm glad I thought of that. Man, that's embarrassing. Um, But needless to say, I was not a great mechanic, kind of moved up my way in the ranks and then just really felt like I found my stride when I got to work with teams and and leading leaders. And I guess that's how I got there.
0: That Sounds pretty good. Yeah, I definitely can identify with the not figuring out exactly what you wanted to do until well into college. Let's say you have to describe your time as a leader in nickel rental in one story. What story is that? What story do you tell? So uh
1: I have to admit, uh you you'd sent me this question in advance, and I agonized over this one. Like that is such a good, complicated question. I would like to tell like some four or five hour story to try and get all of the attributes I want in to that answer. Um but what I what I kind of came back to was A lot of what I did there was surround myself with good people and then just empower them to do the things that they were great at and partner with people. Um, I was never the expert in the room. There was always somebody smarter or better than I was at something. And, you know, I leaned on them a lot to do that. Um, You know, when you hear about the transition from Nickel to Sunbelt, you hear a lot about how involved the team was. And And it's because of that. So my story is... Uh, one of my teammates uh, was, had been at Nickel for years and was doing really well and went for some coaching with a leadership coaching group that we were using. And, and one of the things that they do in that coaching process is a 360 survey, which I highly recommend, they're super useful. And on the 360 survey, they ask you different questions and then you rate yourself, your peers rate you, your boss rates you and uh, your uh, subordinates rate you. And so, uh, and then they aggregate that and they compare that to standard deviations. How does that compare to everybody else who'd rated them that way and that kind of thing? And so, you know, I took the survey for him and he did it. And in the strategic section, he rated himself something crazy, like in the bottom 2% of all people who had ever taken that 360 survey. I mean, just abysmally. And myself and his peers ranked him in the top two percent of the best of the best, it, compared to the you know everybody else who taken the survey is where we felt like he was, and he just didn't know. He he was he was a very thoughtful, strategic, quiet guy, and he assumed because it came easy to him that it was easy for everybody else. And so it was almost like unlocking this hidden talent that we all knew was there, but all of a sudden when you know, that light was shine on it for him. You know, he spoke up more in meetings and shared that strategy. He would he would offer things that he might assume that we'd already thought of, but often case we, cases we hadn't already thought of. And it just helped us accelerate performance in what we did so much. And so I choose that story because it's really not about me. It's about how I can partner with other people. And then they do the great thing. When you surround yourself with people like that, I think a lot of magic can happen. Yeah, I'm
0: reading some leadership books right now. And it uh, a big part of it is just getting the most out of people. It's not really anything that you're doing so much as your empowerment of others. Totally. Okay. So when you took over nickel rental and you got to the point where you're getting offers to buy the business, how does that conversation go with the rest of your family? Cause I mean, I know it's been in the family for generations. I'm sure there's some mixed feelings. How did that conversation slash negotiation go? <laughs>
1: it was, it, it was a conversation over a long period of time. I mean, we had survived the recession, at which point you probably could have bought nickel for pennies on the dollar just to help us survive because we weren't sure we were going to make it um, to accelerated growth, which was where we were at. You know, we actually first sat down and talked about it as a leadership team. Our initial thought was that we wanted to go with a private equity acquisition rather than a strategic acquisition because we wanted kind of more skin in the game still in building and, and growing the company, or at least that's what we felt like at the time. And so that conversation was actually a little bit more difficult, I think, with my parents. They were going to cash out completely in it, so it was no risk to them, but they worried about the risk to me, which I thought was really interesting. You know, I, at the time was 37, and so, you know, my response was, well, what if it doesn't work out? I've still got plenty of time to start over, but why not take the chance? And then, you know, as part of that process, we had the strategic partners on the list. They had talked to us multiple times. They were really good at reaching out and kind of testing the waters with us. So we knew there was some interest there. The conversation of moving it from private equity to strategic um, was probably the more difficult conversation because it was both easier and more fraught with emotion. I guess for everybody involved. Not to say my parents as much because they were relatively retired. But okay. you know, you're hitching your cart to somebody else's horse uh, when you go through a strategic acquisition. And is that the right decision for the team? Is anybody going to lose their jobs? You know, what's going to happen? You know, how's my job going to change? And those were all very complex questions to ask and answer, and at the end of the day, it was the right decision, and um, the team was very happy there, but we had very little time to adapt to that. you know we We made the decision to sell their strategic acquirer and then uh, opened a sunbelt forty five days later. You know that's almost like um, meeting uh, going on a first date and then getting married in forty five days. It happens, and sometimes that goes really well. But that's not a whole lot of time to process. I'm really glad that it happened to me personally um, because a lot of my personal identity was wrapped up in the business itself, and I didn't really realize how much my personal identity was wrapped up in it. To the point, I mean, it
0: literally has your last name.
1: In- yeah, and and I wore a nickel green um, wedding ring. Um, and uh, I felt like I was an independent person outside of my business, but when we got acquired, I realized how much my identity was really tied to that, and there's nothing wrong with that per se, but I think it's good to be comfortable with who you are separate from other things like that, separate from an organization, and so it was an opportunity for me to be able to really step away and figure out more of who I am. My personal mission statement is to lead people to greatness and empower them to do it for others. You know That has nothing to do with Um, nickel rental necessarily but I'd never thought of it outside the context of nickel rental and so I would say my internal conversations were probably more complicated than even my conversation
0: with my parents through the whole process hey everyone are you ready to laugh it's time for Jonathan's jokes let's give him a hand
1: alright dear Uh, Point of Rental Friends, I come with you with some jokes today. So we're going to start off with joke number one. And this is one of my favorites. Why can't your hands
0: be 12 inches long? Because then it would be a foot. Okay, Josh, let's talk about you at the ARA. I'm probably not the best judge of this because I am not a super expert about the industry, but you seem like you know a ton about the industry and could probably operate anywhere within it if you want to. So why'd you choose to join the ARA?
1: I think that the the question is actually the answer. Being part of the ARA, I get to be part of all of it. I get to be part of the whole industry. I get to impact the whole industry. I get to work with friends. Um, I get to work with colleagues. I get to support other people in their businesses. I get to work in technology and equipment and all the parts of a business and the industry at the same time. You know, we talked about earlier that I enjoy that complexity and the doing new and different things. And this is a growing, exciting industry. And you know, I think the thing that I like about the ARA is that I get to do passionate work for a nonprofit organization that just wants to benefit the industry and be part of all facets of the industry
0: and support it at the same time. I'm glad you expanded on it. At the beginning, it sounded kind of zen, like I am one with the industry. The <laughs> industry is within me. You kind of vaguely gave me an answer to this next one, but. What does the vice president of the equipment segment do? What's, so your, what's I, your day-to-day?
1: Yeah, I have such a hard time answering this question. You know, keeping in mind, you know, I, I'm really about three, you know, a, a few months into this process right now. On some level, I like to joke around and say that I get paid to be an ambassador. Of course, it's, it's more work than that. I was talking to a colleague. Oh, you're just
0: insulting ambassadors. Jeez.
1: Oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. I was talking to a colleague at AEM, Association of Equipment Manufacturers, and she described it really well, I think. She said, my job is to know people and know things and then bring those two together. And I thought that was a really cool description of it. You know, the equipment segment and the event segment are really unique in that you know they in back in the 50s when the ARA was first designed you know you'd get your candelabra and your aerator from the same place you know that now that's becoming a lot less common you know there's a lot of startups in the event industry because you can technically start with a garage and a couple of balloon bounces. In the equipment industry, you really need millions of dollars to get started. And it's a consolidating industry. And so being able to, to spend a lot of time with my experience in different facets of the industry, having been an associate member, a general member, a partner, a volunteer leader, to be able to to influence everything so that our messaging is really targeted at the people we're intending it for. Um, You know, there's so much great that the ARA does, uh, but sometimes that gets lost in the noise And, and being able to focus on a particular segment and make sure that everything that we're doing is really pointed and speaks to it, brings high value to it um is a lot of what I spend my time doing. I know that's somewhat vague because it it can vary, you know, some days it might be talking to Brian and talking about the rental industry, other days it could be writing something for rental management or, you know, later this week I'm going to be recording uh, some driver training for Clean Safe Essential. And it just it can be really different every day, which is something that I really enjoy.
0: All right, Mr. Ambassador, tell me about the cool stuff that the ARA is doing now or technically in the future, but you know,
1: Well, I mean, obviously, we are excited to get back, getting back to seeing people in 3D at the show soon. So of the things that get everybody excited right now, I think that's probably the biggest thing because we have missed seeing each other so much. Uh, But we have a lot of other things that are going on that are really great too. Um, We're spending a lot of time on workforce development and following somebody from the beginning of their career to the end of their career in rental, you know, so that they get into the industry and they get stuck in the industry and can really evolve with the industry. We've got the uh, ARA job board that just kicked off. It's got thousands of jobs on it already. So that if you want to stay in rental, but maybe you work for an independent rental company or you want to consider working for a different company and you want to move somewhere, you have that ability to stay in the industry. We've got an equipment certification that's kind of like the event certification that'll be coming out next year, that'll help you get into the industry and give you some credibility right off the bat. You know, we're creating mentorship programs and, you know, so much so that when somebody gets in the industry, they can really have the opportunity to grow into the industry and do whatever they want. We've got Clean Safe Essential, which, you know, is tied a little bit to the past of the pandemic response. Uh, but it really has evolved on the equipment segment to mean clean being sustainable because equipment rental is one of the most sustainable parts of the construction industry. Uh, we're an industry focused on safety and um, we're an essential industry to building the future. And that, that consistent, ongoing upskilling of everybody in the industry. So we're always focused on the things that matter most. This year, we're probably going to be focusing a lot on driver training uh, because of the immense amount of accidents that that causes and how do we impact for the industry or that for the industry. And then, you know, so many different little things on top of that, from education to uh, a tech conference uh, next year that's going to be looking at everything from composites to electrification uh, to, uh, on some level, software. Um, you know, the different things like that, I think, are, are cool. It's just, uh, it's hard to choose sometimes because there's so much good stuff going on.
0: Definitely send us information about that tech conference. That's
1: right. Absolutely. <laughs> I, am, I know you will be there.
0: All right. And that's really neat that the uh, you guys have found a way to take that clean safe essential and make it something that can be used in the future and basically yeah, tie we, it into everything.
1: We were really excited about the idea because it, it was obviously a, 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 a conversation that had to be very thoughtful over a period of time because you know, at first it was just that reaction. Um, to getting members what they needed. But then we kind of stumbled across something great. And both small and large, even even international rental companies were looking at it going, this thing has legs. This could be really good for us in our industry. We could talk about what's relevant and help us keep the industry relevant. I was very excited to see that continue to transition and evolve into a way that we can add consistent value on an annual basis. Is, is that
0: basically the best thing that you've seen that has come out of Covid nineteen, as far as like silver linings, obviously, you know, not you don't want a worldwide pandemic, but yeah, nobody wants a worldwide
1: pandemic. Um, without a doubt, uh, I, I would say you know you have to keep in mind it's a tale of two very different stories. For, For the sure. event segment, it was just an awful, painful year. Uh, I think there's so much opportunity in events as as they come back, and I'm very excited about that. But the equipment industry was different. You know, the equipment industry. You know, comparatively, did pretty well. Um, you know, your national rental companies were down on average about ten percent, which in comparison really isn't that bad. And a lot of independent and small and mid-sized rental companies had their best year ever on the equipment segment. Um, I, I think that what is going to be be good about it for the industry is it continues the idea that rental is a sustainable option it's the professionalized version of the sharing economy it's part of a more circular economy it's about access versus ownership when you were a contractor last year looking out at your job site going what's the restrictions going to be next week is this job going to continue i'm gonna have to move to a different job they're not looking at that equipment on their job site going well, that's going to cost me money. And how am I going to make those payments? Because they can rent the equipment, you know, and it gave them so much flexibility in such an uncertain time. It, I think, really has reinforced the value of let us manage your assets for you. Let us manage your equipment. That's what we're great at. We're not great plumbers. You go be a great plumber.
0: Yeah. According to your LinkedIn, you're also a part of four other organizations, you're also super active on LinkedIn itself. Where do you find the energy, Josh? <laughs> Honestly, I'm gonna need a week just to recover from this interview. And I actually like talking to you. So where do you get this energy? That's hilarious.
1: And I actually like talking. I don't know. Why do you have to clarify that you like talking to me? No, I'm just kidding.
0: I mean, there's lots of people that I don't really like talking to that I have okay, to talk fair,
1: to. Fair, fair. Um, I actually had to go back and update my LinkedIn because you're right, I had too many jobs on there.
0: You know, I spend you
1: know, 99% of my time with the association. Um, I am called upon sometimes to be an advisor or ambassador outside of the association to the industry in other countries or, you know, different things like that. And, you know, at the end of the day, I just love talking about rental. You know, a conversation like we're having today is exciting. It's engaging and it's something you want to show up for. So it's not really about having energy. I, I feed off the energy of the other businesses and uh, companies and the industry and the impact that we're able to make. They say you should you know, work is a big part of your life. So you should really enjoy what you do. And this has given me the opportunity to do a lot of that.
0: Good, I'm glad you enjoy it. (laughs) You're kind of a futurist, at least within the rental industry. Uh, What is the industry going to look like in 10 years in your mind? I'm glad you narrowed that box for me because I wouldn't want too
1: big of a box there. You know, I think electrification is going to be a really big thing over the next 10 years, whether it be battery powered, plug-in, yeah, electrifying rental equipment, just like electrifying uh, vehicles, makes a lot of sense on, on many levels. You know, I don't know how, if you've ever watched a novice try and start a chainsaw, uh, but it's terrifying. And when you deal with electric, it simplifies that user experience. It simplifies maintenance. Um, depending on the power grid you're on, it's even more sustainable. You know? So I think that we're going to see a lot of things get electrified and miniaturized over the next 10 years um, for everybody's real benefit. You know, certainly there'll be a retooling cost there as you're transitioning from one to the other. But I think that that'll be a really fun one to watch. The other one um, that I think will be fun to watch is things going more autonomous. And I use autonomous because it's the buzzword that people talk about a lot. But it's not really autonomy. It's kind of like when so- in software, when people say AI, you know,
0: yeah.
1: a really good equation can do ninety nine percent of what AI, the value the AI is going to bring you. You know, we don't need an autonomous cutoff saw that you know drone flies out and makes a, you know cut here and there and then goes back. the The value of the industry for something that's not going to be big but it's the path to autonomy that i think that we're going to start seeing over the next 10 years just like we see it in your car it's those driver assist features uh, that are going to be so cool i mean you wouldn't buy a car nowadays without a backup camera yet you know as rental people we know they're constantly breaking tail lights because they don't turn all the way around in the direction of travel or just have a hard time seeing outside of that equipment um, it's those convenience features that I think will be really beneficial. You know, you think about an excavator that you say, you know, I want to dig this four, this trench four feet deep exactly and don't let me make any mistakes in doing that. You know, it'll be the cutoff saw that's where you say, I want to cut three and a quarter inches deep and four inches wide or, you know, whatever that might be. Uh, I think those are the things that we're going to see over the next 10 years, not really true autonomous equipment, not on construction job sites at least, but it's going to be that path to autonomy and the convenience that's going to be fun.
0: I hope that you're right and we don't get fully autonomous robots because that's how we get ourselves destroyed. Because It could be. Look, I've seen the movies. I've seen it how this be. turns out. We need to <laughs> not it, it, it,
1: it may not be good. It, <laughs> it'll happen in agriculture and mining first because they're repetitive jobs. You know, the piece of equipment is doing the same thing consistently. We're on job sites of traditional construction jobs. That's a really hard place to make things autonomous. So if the AI is going to destroy us all, it's not
0: going to be a construction AI that destroys us all. It's going to be mining AI. There you go. Destroys everyone. Okay, my first guest, Alexis, was a collegiate athlete, set a school record in blocks in volleyball. So, what is your greatest athletic achievement? I really don't have any great
1: athletic achievements, unfortunately. What is your
0: greatest oboe achievement?
1: Well, I was I was second in the state on oboe, so I would say that's a pretty cool achievement. Um, I Is did. that just
0: an award or do you like play as like a state orchestra for like a gig?
1: both uh, so you uh, you win an award and then you do go to like a state performance where you get together with other ranked people and you perform you practice for three days and then do a performance so um, you're like the all star team but yeah
0: of orchestra okay
1: but, but I do have an athletic achievement it's just not great so since I do have one I, i'll go ahead and share that. Yes, please um, do. Uh, I got a third in districts uh, at the 200 IM uh, swimming and 100 breaststroke. Uh, That's pretty good. I I was very proud of. My tongue was numb afterwards because I tried so hard. The other swimmers were so much better than I was, but I just worked really, really hard at it. I always asked my dad why he didn't get me into more sports when I was a kid. And apparently the story goes that they took me to T-ball and I came home from the first one and cried until they told me that I didn't have to go back again. I did triathlons for a while because I liked swimming and I did a, I did complete a half Ironman and a few marathons,
0: but, uh, and I, again, I swam well. I mean, those um, are also good athletic achievements, Josh. Don't I sell yourself short. I guess
1: it's not short. bad. It's, I guess for me, it was more about surviving the race. When, when you compete in a triathlon, they usually rank you based on your swimming speed which is odd because the running is a longer portion of it. And so I was a great swimmer. And so I would be seated at a really high level because I'd swim really fast. And so I'd get out of the the lake or ocean, and I wouldn't say I'm at the top of the pack, but I'm in the higher level group. And then I get on my bike, and I'm not a terrible biker. And so I would kind of hold my own on the bike. I was a terrible runner. And so as soon as I hit the pavement, it was like I was standing still. I was a turtle and you know, all of the hares were absolutely just flying by me. So for the, f- the final half of the race, essentially, all I did was get past.
0: What is a trait that successful leaders have in common, in your opinion?
1: I think that, I mean, there's a lot of traits that successful leaders, I think, have in common, whether it be um, focus on the whole, holding people accountable. But I, I think the one that's probably hardest to develop, and this could be my own personal uh, bias, is empathy and humility, uh, meeting people where they're at, you know, wanting to not be the smartest person in the room being okay admitting weakness, you know, if, if you want to lead at a high level, you can't be the smartest person in the room or you don't have enough good people that are in the room and being okay with that, being okay with not having the answer all the time and leaning on your team to have the answers or to support you through something that you don't know how to solve. Um, that can be really humbling when people look at you and go, well, you're the boss, you're supposed to have the answer to this. Well, I'm, I may be the boss, but I'm not any better than you are. You know, so what can we figure out to this together? And how are you going to feel about me? Because I don't always have the answer or the right answer to things. So I think that balance between humility and empathy, I think, are, are really important, but, but hard to come by sometimes.
0: I'll accept your answer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so while you were with us at Point of Rental, again, we sent you to England. So let's hear your English accent as you explain the proper way to make tea to me
1: okay so i don't know if i can make tea properly there's this whole debate about how long you leave the tea bag in there and whether you put the milk in first this is not an
0: english accent i just gotta say i mean you can explain the difference but do it okay so
1: i have to clarify the other part then first too um i've been told that i am not allowed to do an english accent for people because it's offensive and off-putting my daughters are great in english accents i can do a little bit of scottish um, and so I was going to try and do a little bit of Scottish why I can do Scottish and not English. I don't know That's an um, interesting one. Okay. But my wife says it's an angry Scotsman Okay um, So if you're going to make some tea, oh that's actually a little bit more British, isn't it?
0: Scottish. It sounded a little more British to, to me. Scottish. I could understand what you were saying a lot better. So it be lot can't be too Scottish. Scottish
1: Scottish see I'm terrible at these accents. I'm just it's, it's offensive. I can't do it. should of have course. left you over there I guess you know, I, I love the accent so much. Um, I, I couldn't tell this story when I first went to England, but um, my family, we went on cruises for vacation. That's all my parents really like to do. So I've been on like 18 cruises. Well, if you've been on cruises, then you know that in a lot of cases, your cruise director, who's kind of like the host that tells you when everything cool is gonna happen, is usually British and has a British accent. So I grew up on vacation, only hearing British accents on vacation. So British accents make me happy at like a childhood level. And so when I first got to England, I'm like, everybody's amazing. I don't even know what to do. I'm just like on vacation all the time. It was such a strange
0: thing. What is your go-to magic trick? Is there one that you always have ready to go in public situations?
1: I get asked you perform this a, it now. <laughs> I get asked this a lot when people find out uh, that I was a magician for a while and almost considered that as a career path too. Um, what I liked about that is performing, uh, for people. Um, and, and I'm always hesitant to let people know because that's the first question I get asked.
0: It's like, if you're a comedian and they're like, tell me a joke. Yes.
1: Okay. Yes. And I know so many amazing magicians. I even got, uh, to spend some time with Teller, um, offset, uh, which was really cool at one point. And they're just so good at their craft and I could do a trick but I would ruin it. I I wouldn't really do it service. And when you watch somebody like a pen and teller, they do an act with cups and balls where the cups are clear. And so you can see everything they're doing and it's still mind blowing. I used to be able to do magic and I was pretty good at it, but, um, you know, I I leave it to the professionals nowadays. I will say, since a lot of rental companies listen to this, a, a tip for a promo item, we used to get um, decks of playing cards uh, with our logo on them. and then we learned some really simple magic tricks that usually they're math based or you know something simple that that anybody could do, but still looks pretty cool. And we would go give contractors decks of cards as a promo item, and then we'd show them the trick and then teach them how to do the trick. And it was awesome because then they would show everybody else on the job site the trick because now they knew how to do the trick and they'd want to go do it for everybody else. And the whole time, you know, it's hard to get somebody to hand out your business card, but if they're sitting there using your playing cards for everything, that's not so hard. And so that was a a, a unique promo item that I hadn't seen people use before that, that worked out pretty well for us.
0: Yeah, everyone likes being the guy that knows the secret. That's right. Okay, let's get to the five important questions. Five important questions. Five, important, Five questions. important questions. Five important questions. What would you say is your greatest success in life?
1: I, I would hope to say that I haven't had it yet. You know, for me, it's, it's the relationships that I've built with people over the years and then seeing what they do now, even not working with them anymore um you know raising my family and my my two daughters to have the cultural awareness from living overseas and what that will probably mean to them in their lives so i guess it's the people and it probably will continue to be the people um but but hopefully i'm not done yet and there's more successes left
0: okay i was going to call it a cop-out when you just said they're not i haven't achieved it yet but i like it that question is really just about seeing what your values are secretly
1: well i hope my values weren't bad
0: i like them Okay. So you're okay with me, but that, other people that, might think that fit, liking people terrible. If you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice, when you started your career, what would it be? Enjoy the moment. It's so easy, uh, especially for somebody with my
1: personality, to get focused on the next big thing, the next transition, the next opportunity to grow something or build something or, you know, and they could be small things like opening the next branch or winning an award um, or bigger things like selling a company, you know, but at the end of the day, those milestones are, I think, obvious milestones, but that's not the things that that you really enjoy the most. I remember so many times just sitting out around the conference room table and trying to discuss a new strategy or build a new idea or like, you know, some of the work that we're doing with the association now, working with the um, the special interest groups to, to solve difficult problems in the industry. The milestones are the results, I think, of the good moments. And so, I, you know, I would remind, especially somebody who um, has a personality like mine, to Uh, spend more time in the moment and enjoy the journey, not just the waypoints in the journey, because the journey's the part you spend most of the time on, and it's some of the most rewarding parts
0: of the the process. Now let's get back to, let's close this loop from earlier. What is your most embarrassing moment of your career?
1: Okay, Um, so I had entirely too many embarrassing moments um, as a service tech in the rental store. Um, but I would say the one that probably gets me the, the most confused looks is um, if you're familiar with a one ton roller, uh, and I'll describe it to, for you for, for those who aren't. It's a small ride on roller. Um, you sit on it, but really all it has is a belt or chain driven Honda engine with a one gallon gas tank on it. Um, it's, it's not a large piece of equipment. Um, what they do often have, though, is gigantic water tanks. On them, so that you can um, uh, wet the ground as you're rolling it, which helps with compaction. Of course, I knew none of that at the time. Um, I was supposed to wash and uh, fill up and grease the equipment. I was really good at washing equipment. I can do that, uh, but that's hard to mess up. And so I went to fill up that particular piece of equipment, and I remember rolling it back in um, to the to the um, service bay, and like, man, guys that thing holds a lot of fuel. And you have to keep in mind, we don't have, or at least we didn't have, like you would have at a gas station where you just hold the lever. Ours, you had to actually physically crank the pump. And so I don't know what this tank held, 40, 50, 100 gallons, something crazy. I sat there and pumped that whole water tank full of gas, then rolled it in and was like, guys, this thing takes a whole lot of gas. And they're like, really? I mean, it shouldn't take more than like 10 seconds to fill up that one gallon tank. And, and and they're like, where'd you put the gas, Josh? And so I showed them. And of course I ruined that because there was already some water in there. So now you had water in that fuel. So I ruined all of yeah, those yeah. gallons of fuel. And that was probably the silliest thing that I ever did at a rental store. I my, my mechanical knowledge has has sometimes been lacking, but I've gotten better over the years.
0: Was there any point in like filling the whole 40 gallons that you're like, this seems like, It's probably too much. I don't remember seeing anyone fill for this long. I mean, I wish I could say yes. (laughs)
1: Um, But obviously there wasn't, or maybe I would have stopped. So I learned that one the hard way.
0: All right. Well, sorry, you've been sentenced to death because uh, filling the water tank with fuel is now a capital offense. So what is your last meal and why do you choose that meal? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I think we're gonna have to go back to the first question.
1: I mean, it's gonna be the tomahawk ribeye reverse seared. And because that's the best
0: way to eat a piece of meat. Yeah. Do you have to make it yourself or do you want a chef to prepare it for you? Oh, that's
1: a good question. I mean, you I just talked why, to me about the
0: journey, so. Yeah, I, I don't know why
1: good. this is. And maybe it's just me, but I always feel like it, the food is better when somebody else cooks it. I've been told that I cook a good steak. But, you know, when you're sitting there smelling it as you're cooking it, you're absorbing a lot of those flavors and I just don't think it tastes as good. Um, So I think I would rather somebody else cook it for me.
0: If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be?
1: I I don't know that I would change anything about myself. I think that that every strength is a weakness and every weakness is a strength. And so it's finding that balance. And I I would take it back to the question that you asked earlier about um, the piece of advice. Um, I wouldn't change that. I'm an enthusiastic person that likes to move things forward and grow and create things. Um, but I also have spent a lot of time and I'm sure will continue to spend a lot of time on building balance with that so that I can be satisfied because there's only so many new things you can do or so many um, mi- milestones that you can get to. And, and it you know, I want to spend more time appreciating the process. And so I don't know that it would change it, but I would add more balance.
0: That's a very level-headed answer. If you could change one thing about the rental industry, what would it be? I
1: don't know that I would change anything specific in the rental industry other than to keep it moving forward. You know, it it is a young industry and every industry gets stuck with the idea of groupthink or we do it this way because we've always done it. Um, And you see that absolutely... I wouldn't say wreck, but disrupt is probably a better word. Some industries.
0: What is your spirit spice?
1: I think that I would have to go with either salt or uh, garlic. Um, and, and I want to say, because they make everything better, but that then sounds cocky about myself. I just really like salt and garlic and they yeah. make food tastes better. And it's, I think if I had to pick one, I think it would have to be salt. And while it's not necessarily always great for your blood pressure, it pretty much improves almost any food.
0: Tell me a secret about the rental industry.
1: It's not as complex as we always make it out to be. And I think every industry does that on some level. They say that their industry is more complex than another industry, but the rental industry has very similar issues to any other industry, Uh, whether it be the rental association or rental companies or rental vendors. Um, there's a lot of similarities you know, if you take it even as simple as comparing it to something like a restaurant, um, you know, at a restaurant, you've got chefs and dishwashers who are your mechanics and your service techs, you've got front of the house staff, who are your sales team. You've got leadership, the heart, there's certainly some complexity in that we get equipment back. And that's not something that's commonly done in other industries. And so we layer that on, but to what you and I were talking about before, it's a lot about the people. Um, and creating great thought processes by the people. It is a hard industry to have rules and policies in outside of safety, because it is such a flexible business in nature. And so I think it's a great industry for best practices. So I I guess the, the two secrets might be um, that rules struggle um, in the industry, and that it's, not that dissimilar to many other industries and you can borrow a lot of the same ideas that they have or solutions they have and apply it to our industry so we'll see you at the ARA show i mean obviously where, where else would i be <laughs> i was gonna say i hope that you're gonna be there you know not only will you see me at the ARA show, but you will also see me at the people mover at the ara show i am so excited to be at the hotel complex that has the boring tunnel and the teslas that can move people around autonomously and, you know, I, I think it's a, a super cool place to be, um, you know, in addition to everything else that will be at the ARA show and, and always lots of fun.
0: But don't you think that anywhere that you're at is a super cool place to be?
1: I would, I would like to believe that, um, you know, going back to that I am salt, I am invited to a lot of places because I'm, I'm good there, but, you know, I also cause hypertension, so maybe <laughs> not, maybe not all the way.
0: All right, well, thank you for joining me today, Josh. Absolutely, thanks. For good asking. to see you again. You too. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll look forward to seeing you at the ARA show. Sounds great, Brian. What is your greatest oboe achievement? Oh, okay.
1: It's not gonna be a construction AI that destroys us all. I wanna deal with the animal that can eat you for dinner. You go be a great plumber. It's terrifying. This seems like it's probably too much. I didn't think about superpowers. Everybody's amazing. I was a turtle. You're okay with me. Trash doesn't exist in England. That's what gorilla food tastes like.